Oh no. Do you, do you see it over there? It's, it's coming super fast and it looks larger than ever. Ah, I, I really hope it doesn't. Ah! It's episode two of the Travel Tribe podcast. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that little intro to kick off our show. Our guest today, Tony, is an ocean and marine enthusiast who studied marine and natural history photography. After university, she explored different paths involving oceans and marine life until finally landing a job as a dive instructor and deckhand on a super yacht. Joining us all the way from Ireland today, please welcome Tony. We met a couple of years ago. We were diving actually in Koh Tao on a trip to Sail Rock, and you were actually there doing your dive instructor course, and intrigued me that you were working on these super yachts, and they sounded super interesting, the kind of opportunities you had working on them. But I want to kind of bring it back before we get to that point. Can you tell me, where did your passion for the oceans and marine life begin? I've had it kind of all my life, and even though I didn't come from a family of seafarers or anything like that, I was just drawn to it. So after sixth form in the UK, I was looking at university degrees, And I was kind of drawn to Falmouth University. They offered a course in marine and natural history. And I specialized in the underwater sector. And I just started doing all my underwater qualifications, cold water based. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where it all kind of grew and developed from. And so did you have some interesting experiences or internships? Or did you guys go on any trips to practice the photography? Yeah, we did. The most of our our diving was done in Cornwall, which is a beautiful Mm -hmm. spot to dive anyway. Mm-hmm. a lot of kelp forests and it's nice and cold and then we took a trip to egypt so we did the red sea which you have to do if you're a diver mm-hmm. and then i took myself i think in my second year to the seychelles and i did a marine conservation internship with gvr which was amazing and what did that involve that internship we did a lot of kind of whale shark research And we did some research for the local NGOs, just seeing the plankton, how it's developing the area and encouraging kind of the mating rituals and the attraction of the whale shark. And if I remember correctly, when you guys were in the Red Sea, did you guys go off any boats or was it just shore diving? It was at this really cool place called Masa Shagra. And it's really isolated. You don't go there unless you're just purely diving because there's nothing else. So you could Mm -hmm. do short entry every day. You just sign yourself off the logbook or you could take a small rib out. So super flexible. And so after this great experience of learning so much about underwater photography and the oceans, what was your journey after that? After that, I just finished with my degree and I was kind of ever, everyone after uni, you're kind of stuck. You're not sure where to go. And I did a really random thing and I worked for a Harley Street doctor for two months in London. And then I was like, this London life is not for me. I couldn't take the train and the commute anymore. Mm-hmm. So I just Googled around and I heard something popped up on Facebook about a super yacht and a career in that, which I'd never heard of before anything. So I kind of got in contact with this team in Phuket, Galileo Maritime Academy. And I went, I told my parents, they thought I was crazy. And I just felt like this was something awesome to do. And yeah. yeah, I just jumped straight into it, basically. That's really interesting. And so we kind of talked about this in our kickoff with our other guests, is the fear of the unknown. You're following this path, what everyone is supposed to be doing and getting a job and living in London and doing that. And then all of a sudden you have this dream or inspiration to do something completely different no one else has done. Did you have that kind of fear or how did you overcome that fear? 
Oh, I had so much fear. <laughs> you know, I'm also an only child. So my family, just my parents moved to England from South Africa. And that was the biggest thing we'd really done as a family. So it was completely scary traveling somewhere by myself. I paid a lot of money online that I didn't know if I could trust. But I just felt something inside me that was just like a pure instinct of excitement. When you get that kind of adrenaline and that feeling in life, you've got to go for it. So yes. I just, I do recommend people to, when they get that spark and things feel right for them to just jump in. Was there any pressure by your parents or your friends not to take that route or your support system encouraging you to go ahead and do that? No, they were supportive in the kind of aspect where they were like, if you need to come home, you can, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, give us a call. But that kind of pushed me to want to achieve it and travel and do the things. My friends were very academic, so they always often did very impressive things business-wise and in London. Nice. Um, so they couldn't really relate to me on this aspect. But for me, this was something that I had to do. And so maybe some of our viewers who aren't familiar with super yachts, can you give us a, maybe a quick description of what a super yacht is? Yeah, super yachts, you might call it mega yachts. They are these mm -hmm. elite yachts around the world. They're owned by the mega rich. Mm -hmm. It's a massive industry and growing. Mm -hmm. And it's just, yeah, it's a seven-star luxury vessel that can be either privately owned by a family or a corporation, or it can be chartered. So different, mm -hmm. very wealthy people can rent it out for a certain amount of time. Yeah, I was just like a random side note. I was thinking, is that, do they have like an Airbnb of super yachts where you can rent them for a week and pretend you're like one of the mega rich to impress your friends? It might not be called Airbnb, but I'm sure there is one for the mega rich. Just chartering. I was just thinking that'd be cool just to get a taste of what it's like and invite all your friends on there. So you have the instinct, you find something that kind of sparks your joy, tells you, hey, I want to take advantage of this. You have the fear that we all have and you kind of overcome that and you land in Phuket. What are your first thoughts when you get to Phuket? Oh my word, so much, so much. Mm -hmm. Like one thing about Galileo's, they were like a family. They came mm -hmm. and they picked me up. They were so welcoming and patient and so professional, which I always really, that always makes me feel so much more comfortable in a place. Mm -hmm. And like, it was a beautiful place I was staying and kind of, they sit down and let you get, get all sorted. And then they run you through the itinerary and then they start to talk about the possibilities and when they start to talk about what you're actually working towards, it's like, oh, this is insane. How did I not know about this? I feel that always happens once you start taking advantage of one opportunity. You learn how there is this whole industry, this whole world that we never knew about that leads to other opportunities. I mean, yeah, just diving with you, I learned all about super yachts that I didn't even know about before. And I was talking to other dive buddies and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm trying to get a job on a super yacht as well. So I totally understand the feeling. So walk us through, how is the schooling process? Is it a quick one-week boot camp? Is it a couple months long? How does the schooling look like for to work on these super yachts? Well, there's different kind of courses you can do all over. There's the main qualification that you need, and then there's mm -hmm. also little additional ones that you can gain. So some people might come to the academy just to refresh a course or to mm -hmm. do something specific. So I went and I did my STCW which you have to have. And then there were also some additional courses. So I was originally training as a stewardess. So you did like silver service uh, training, floral arrangements, cocktail making, all that kind of interesting fun stuff on top of the important ones that you have to do. So there's a great range there. And I think my course ran, my memory's a bit shaky. I think it was about a month. And was it pretty intense? 
It mm-hmm. was, we were training every day. And then at the same time, we did a day experience on an actual yacht doing deck work. And actually, like, I ended up being a deckhand myself. So I didn't have the intention, though. I was like, I'm going to be a stew. It sounds super cool. I don't know about all this deckhand work. And when I did the one day day experience, I was like, it's okay, but I still think I'd prefer interior. Yeah. And then when I got the job, I could not imagine doing anything else. So let's start with the grounding part of deckhand. What's a deckhand's role on the yacht? What is his duties? So you're basically looking after the exterior maintenance of the vessel. You're driving the tenders that transports the guests. You are playing with a lot of the toys, which is nice. A lot of polishing. So <laughs> you have to get used to it. You have to accept it. It's just part of the job. And yes, I love it. And then what about the interior? You said floral arrangements. What else is included if you work on the interior? Well, the interior girls work hard. They have to keep the whole interior perfect all the time. Not mm-hmm. just like hotel quality. This is seven star. So mm-hmm. like we're talking fingerprints kind of stuff. Yeah. Then they make sure everything is, the chefs are working. They present everything beautiful. They make sure the guests are happy. Basically mm-hmm. anything the guests want, they got to be on it. And they also look after the crew. It's kind of like we look after each other. There's a big family aspect, but the interior do a lot of stuff like that as well. And there are some other roles that are also that you can have on the boat as well. Seeing like an engineer, what are some of the other possibilities? Chef, I believe. It does depend. Every yacht is different depending on the size, depending on the owners. So our yacht was quite large. It was about 85 meters. I think we had about 25 crew and we had our interior, exterior. Then you also have your engineers. So your chief engineer and then your second and third. And then your officers, chief officer, second officer, and your captain, of course. And then all those roles you can get done at Galileo or people come from all over? It would depend on the owner. Mm -hmm. We had amazing chefs on board. Mm -hmm. The same chefs that served the guests were serving us even when Mm -hmm. the guests weren't on board. So Mm -hmm. I presume they've got very high experience and professional backgrounds. The Galileo didn't teach the cooking side of things, but... And engineering as well, you have to be a qualified engineer because that's a very serious position. You're in charge of a lot of people's safety and the boat's running. So So you get through the course in Phuket and do they offer some kind of support system in terms of like helping you get your foot in the door in the industry? Because I know, for example, like in in diving, when you get your instructor course, it's really important to kind of get the dive shop that's going to help you get your foot in the door or give you some opportunities, get internships at the dive shop because you're fresh out of the gate. So people don't know whether to trust you. So How do you get your foot in the door? Yeah, Galileo definitely helped. I was such a greenie. So there's kind of a few ways of doing it. One way is to apply online. There are so many yacht agencies that you can just start applies to as many as you can. But of course, it's very competitive. The other Mm -hmm. thing you can do is dock walk. So you print out a few CVs, you put on your smiley face, and you actually go and shake their hand and meet them. And Mm -hmm. um, it's good for them to know that you're in the area and you're willing to start soon. So with us, the director of our course, Anthony, actually sent, as soon as we finished our CVs, it was part of our course to write our own as well. He sent it to Yacht Haven Marina, which was his local marina. And any new yachts that had just come in would look through. And if anything were interesting, they'd order an interview. Is that how you got your foot in the door then at your yacht? Or how was your experience? Yeah, I was very lucky because you can end up actually going home and Mm -hmm. wasting weeks and having to apply somewhere else but I was so blessed a yacht had just come in and they were looking for a day worker so I was like sweet I'll do anything so I went down and I met the chief officer 
and it was the biggest boat I've ever seen. I fell in love with her. I fell in love with the crew and I just started day working. And yeah. because my accommodation was running up at Galileo, I had just finished the course the day before. I said, is it okay if I could please stay on board with you whilst I'm day working? And the chief officer was amazing. And he said, yes. And like I was on board for about two and a half years, three years. That's a long time. So walk us through those first couple of weeks that you're on this brand new boat, this brand new seven-star lifestyle coming from Phuket, probably eating some pad thai in the street, and all of a sudden they throw you into this luxury lifestyle. How were those first couple of weeks on that boat? Oh, man. I still get goosebumps thinking about it. It was just absolutely unreal. And everyone was so amazing I think they were like who is this kid like she's got no experience she's just like I was super enthusiastic and after a while that wears off so I probably annoyed a few people but it was just so surreal you get your uniform you get cracking anything they wanted me to do I was just up for it and I mean I couldn't believe like I like shiny things anyway Uh but the tenders down there which are the boats that you drive there's like five on board and then like it was a while till I got to see the interior of the Mm. guest area. It's another world. I mean, the toiletries are all there for you. The chefs cook for you at least twice a day. It's just the cabins were stunning. Like I'd never seen anything like this. So it was, it was just, oh man, amazing. Like a modern day Titanic. It sounds like. (laughs) Yeah. So what were the, some of the destinations that you guys usually go to when you guys are on the boat? Do you guys have a set destination or what's the course like? I think a lot of boats out there, they either have a, a circulation of the Med to the Caribbean. Our yacht was amazing. We were very lucky with our family. We were privately owned by a family and they were doing worldwide travel. Mm-hmm. So I got on in Phuket and then we did a whole trip, Singapore, Indonesia, down to New Zealand, did the North and South Island all around. Then we crossed the Pacific, Tahiti, Panama. And then back through, did a bit of the is it Miami, Florida, West Palm Beach. And then they were kind of making their way back and then Cartagena where we had a dry dock. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it was pretty extensive travel. And so when you guys are visiting all these destinations like Singapore and Miami, do you guys get some chance back on land to kind of get your fins nice and dry? Or are you guys constantly on the boat? <laughs> yeah, no, we do. When our guests are not on board, we're mm-hmm. usually alongside. So this means that we're kind of tied up alongside. We have watches, so full crew. Um, that would be an engineer, a deck, an officer, and a stew would be on night watch. And mm-hmm. that's just to ensure the boat's safety, security, make sure things are, you know, fire checks, things like that throughout the night. And everyone else is off in the evening. So you can go on land to shop, to have food, drink, party, and then mm-hmm. come home and start work the next day. So it's a bit more of a normal routine. You might get a day off on the weekend or two if you're lucky, which is completely different to when the guest is on board. So mm. it's a great way of traveling because you really get into the heart of some places, but then mm. you always have a seven-star bed waiting for you. So Right. You don't have to go and sleep in the dorm somewhere to save a couple of dollars, no, right? No <laughs> hostels. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you're talking about community and the people and you go out and I'm, I'm assuming you probably get really close kind of like a family by being with each other so often. Tell us how are the relationships with the other people on the boat and what kind of people are usually on the super yacht? Do we have super young people looking to explore the world or tell us a little bit about the people on the boats. Yeah, so there's a range of ages. When mm-hmm. I started, I was 
I think I was 20 or something. Must have been mm-hmm. 20, 21. But then it ranged to like 50. So mm-hmm. there was a good experience. You need the experienced people to be the officers and the captains. Well, there was a whole mix, to be honest, across the field. Our yacht was very unique. There was great longevity. So there's some people who've been the, on the boat for 10 years since the build mm-hmm. because we had with such a great boat, great crew, great owners. So it really does depend. You do become like a very strange, dysfunctional family. <laughs> um, it is amazing. I mean, like our crew were really fantastic and I made some really good friends, but it doesn't mean it's easy. I mean, you're with people all the time and people that you wouldn't normally mix with and there's different cultures, different backgrounds, but you learn a lot about yourself and it teaches you so much. Yeah, but you have to have a bit of patience, but it's worth it. And I mean, it's an incredible thing to share with other people. I can't imagine being 21 years old, you're getting to live this seven-star lifestyle, getting fed lobster and crab and getting to see some of the most beautiful places in the world. And like straight out at 21, while people are just going to work every day, doing the same old, same old, it's an incredible experience. Speaking of the opportunities, are they pretty lucrative or does it depend on the boat? How is the financial incentive for young people or people looking to join these super yachts? Oh man, the financial incentive alone is pretty Mm -hmm. strong. The money side is, it's brilliant. It allows you to plan for your future, build something back home that's maybe waiting for you to Mm -hmm. invest. I mean, some people just spend it, which you can do. You can kind of get swept up in the money. You sacrifice a lot for the money. Of course. But it's definitely, there's so many perks. The traveling, mm-hmm. meeting new people, the food, the experiences. Mm-hmm. Like, even just, it was such an honor to meet the family that owned our yachts. It was such a privilege to actually spend time with them. You're not always in that situation in yachting. I've heard some terrible stories with some terrible owners that are difficult to work with. But we didn't have that case. Our owners were incredible. The things they shared with us, they would let us go in the helicopter and take tours and just be a part of their adventure. So that was mm-hmm. amazing. And I'm all the financial incentive, but I'm also assuming that your expenses are probably pretty limited if you're on the boat, right? Because you're most likely not paying for rent. You're not paying for food, I'm assuming. Is that correct? No, you don't pay for food. You don't pay for toiletries because mm-hmm. all the shampoos, everything's there for you. Travel, they pay for your travel. I mean, you save up so much. You got to like, you can get carried away. Of course. Like, you buy designer everything and have expensive cars. But if you just yeah. put a bit aside, it's the best investments. And there's so yeah. many opportunities out there. If you're living with a one percent, you sometimes end up trying to match them and, and spend like a one percenter. So, uh, but <laughs> yeah. that's really cool. You did mention something that I remember was really appealing about this job. If I remember correctly, what you told me a couple years back is that you would be working for three months and then you would have one month off, and they would send you wherever you wanted or to your house. Yeah. So as a deckhand, I actually had a very good rotation, which was three months on, one month at home. So. That's very good because it can, I've heard of some deckhands working for like six months and getting one month off. Mm -hmm. So the three months is good. You really get to buckle into your work and then by the end of it, you're ready to go home. Mm -hmm. And then, but you're still paid all year round, which is Mm -hmm. amazing. So my husband, who was the second engineer on board, he worked, I think he was six weeks on, six weeks off. But I mean, that's very good. So that's basically um, working half the year and then you're off half the year. I did meet some people that have similar work styles. I met a helicopter pilot uh, in Saudi Arabia who does the six weeks on, six weeks off. So that is actually a pretty nice lifestyle if you're trying to also have a time for yourself to explore things. 
The one thing I also wanted to touch upon was the owners. You kind of said it's a really big impact on the workers and your lifestyle, depending on what owners you get. I'm sure there are probably some horror stories. So is there a way for people to check or review or find out what the working conditions are before they take that commitment? I'm not too sure because it's quite Mm -hmm. difficult. You don't want to be stepping on anyone's toes, especially when you're looking for a good job. Mm -hmm. One thing you can look at is how many people in that department they've been through in Mm -hmm. like a year. If they've been through like 20 stewardesses in a year, there's maybe a reason for that. And I mean, as soon as you come on board, everyone's very honest. You're going to hear whether the owners are nice or not very quickly. How often do the owners come back on the boat? How often are they actually there? Again, it depends. You get yachts who are anchored all the time in a really nice marina and their owners might live just a few miles down the road so they pop over all the time. Our owners, I would say maybe twice a year, they'd Mm -hmm. come on for a season and they might be on for like a few weeks, a month, maybe two, Mm -hmm. a month and a half. And then as soon as they'd be like, okay, we'll meet you in New Zealand. And we're like, okay, great. We're in Indonesia. So we'll the captain will plot our route and we'll just mm-hmm. make our way there, making a few stops along the way, making sure that the boat's ready for them. So it varies so much. So I'm imagining right now that you guys, hearing that they come on twice a year, it's like when your parents leave in high school, you invite everyone for the party. And then the last week before the owners get on the boat, you guys are polishing and getting that seven star look for them and just cleaning everything up before they see anything, right? It is manic. There is a lot of stress before the boss comes on board because Mm -hmm. all the work you've been doing for the past few months, like it has to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And like these boats, they require so much work. I mean, Mm -hmm. to keep stainless steel salt free and dry all the time from rust. I mean, it's constant work. And then when they do come on board, it's nice. It's a change. Everything changes. You don't get a break. So Mm -hmm. you don't get a day off when the boss is on board. It's just go, go, go. But you just accept it. And then as mm-hmm. soon, you, before they leave, we had a big party with them, which mm-hmm. was really nice, end of season yeah. party. And then when they go, we might get a few days off just to like breathe again and then just catch up on some sleep because sleep is something super important. Yeah, and of then course. Get back into a more chilled routine. We were talking about all the perks and the benefits, and I'm starting to hear a little bit of the downside. I like to have people explain that because sometimes we see – images and videos on Instagram of like the high life of being abroad, but there are definitely downsides to it as well. Can you share maybe some of the less glamour parts of the job or the lifestyle? I think the biggest thing is the sacrifices. You miss out on your family at home. You miss out on Christmases, birthdays, births. And every time you're on the boat, you're in this bubble. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as you come home, you're like, what? People's lives have moved on and think you know, yeah. that's quite difficult. In terms of unglamorous jobs on board, I suppose like the realities are like we have to clean the tanks. Like I'd be in there sometimes cleaning the water tank. I don't mm-hmm. mind it, but like it's not the most glamorous. And right. the engineers would have to clean the grey water tanks, which is the most unpleasant job. I think on some yachts the deckhands do it, but you have to be realistic. And I know a few of the deckhands got very fed up of polishing for weeks and months and years on end. But yeah. it's just part of the job, you know? So is there a way to move up on the boat as well? Or is there so many kind of promotions or switching boats? 
Yeah, so that's what I love most about this whole yachting experience is it's essentially a, a career. I mean, I personally saw myself doing that for the rest of my life. I unfortunately had to leave because of health reasons. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I started at the very, very bottom. And mm-hmm. before I left, I was really working to get my officer of the watch. So from the deckhand, you can kind of move up to bosun if you like. And then you can work to get your officer of the watch, which means you can go into the officer's rank. Maybe if there's a third officer, second officer, then chief, and then mm-hmm. captain. And then mm-hmm. the engineering side, you have the third engineer. And then I think you get your Y2 to become the second and then the chief engineer. And then for the stewardesses, they can work up to like the interior manager. So there mm-hmm. are a lot of possibilities for growth. So, of course, we met diving a couple of years ago on Kotao. And how did diving come into the picture of being on the boat? How did you incorporate your love for diving into your lifestyle on the boat? So after about two months, when they took me on permanently as a deckhand, we had a boss trip and the boss liked or there was diving involved and they loved it. And mm-hmm. so they always took a few crew along with them to dive, which was insane. Yeah. So we did that a few times and obviously I love it and I love looking after gear and kidding up and all that kind of stuff. And I had a good relationship with them and they said they would pay for me to go and do my instructor and I could come back as the deckhand dive instructor. And this was just the most insane opportunity ever. So yeah. that's when I came and I met you at Kotao and I did my mm. instructor. And then, um, yeah, I went back on board and I began my new journey doing that. Yeah, I mean, you were the one person I think I've ever met that was able to get your dive instructor course financed, paid for, to fly out there, accommodations and come back. I mean, what an opportunity. And so who do you take out diving on the boat? The families go or their children go? Yeah, so it was kind of like, I can't say too much about the family, but it was (laughs) the family's grandson. He was a great diver and his girlfriend also, she loved it. And he took great pride in the gear. It was really important to him that everything was well looked after, very nicely organized. And so that's when I kind of came into play. And after a few months, we actually sat down and we redesigned the dive store. And I got okay. to order all new atomic kits and really get it like top-notch equipment, which was insane. And then um, he also, he had the full face masks, which... I don't think he had used yet, or I think they bought them once. So he sent me, and um, I went to go do the course in full face mask communication. And the intention was to come back and teach the people on board, and as well as the crew and the boss. But that's when I got ill, so I didn't get to do that. That sounds like amazing equipment than the equipment that I'm used to. <laughs> that is not going to be used by 150 divers just that week. <laughs> <laughs> So it sounds like a really cool opportunity that you were able to follow your passion of oceans and marine life, take that big risk that you have no idea where it's going to end up. I'm sure the beginning wasn't pretty getting used to doing some of these duties, but then you move your way up, you see some amazing places, you get to meet your husband, and it sounds like a fantastic journey. So if somebody is interested in kind of following this journey, what are some tips or tricks or advice that you would give them before they partake on their adventure? I think just get as many qualifications as you can. It's Obviously, it's a growing industry, but there's so much competition, especially mm-hmm. if you're looking for a stew position or a deckhand. Mm-hmm. So you obviously have to have your STCW, which is your, that's your firefighting, your first mm-hmm. aid, your personal survival techniques, 
and personal safety, social responsibility. So you have to have those. Mm-hmm. And then on top of this, you need a CFERS medical, an ENG one. Mm-hmm. And then additional ones to help you out from the deck side of point of view is your powerboat level two, mm-hmm. your VHF short range, that's the radio, VHF. And then I also got my EDH, which is efficient deckhand. And also mm-hmm. I got a yacht rating. So, I mean, some people go for their yacht master. Things like that are really essential for the basic skills of seafaring. And then for being a stew, I mean, additional qualifications and additional skills are really helpful. Like if you have hairdressing or beauty mm-hmm. technique or the masseuse, or even if you play like a specific instrument, my cousin's just gone on yacht and she's a talented musician. So if the boss finds that you have a skill that's going to contribute to your life on board. It's worth investigating. If someone was trying to get their foot in the door, what would be the best way to do that? Go through an agency or try networking or Facebook groups? Yeah, people do it different ways. It depends where you are. So you can do it online. Mm-hmm. There's so many different yacht agencies and there's Vantage Yacht Agency as well. There's so many. So you could just apply mm-hmm. online. The other thing you can do is if you're in the areas, dock walk. So just print off a whole stash of your CVs and just go and meet and greet people. And yeah, social media these days, get your LinkedIn. One thing I would say though, everything is online these days. So before you send off anything, just look through your social media, make sure that you're happy with everything, that you don't have anything dodgy. Because yeah. as well as accepting you as a professional crew, they're looking mm-hmm. if you'll fit into their family. So just mm-hmm. just your professional in all aspects of social media. Thank you so much for that advice for people who are interested in pursuing that route. So it sounds like you had a fantastic opportunity. You had to come back. And one of the hardest things that happens for us, especially expats or travelers or people living abroad, is repatriating it and coming back to a different routine or a different lifestyle that you have this adventurous lifestyle. And the way I view it is when you're abroad or living abroad, the highs are so much higher. You see new things that you would never see or eat food you would never have, or people invite you, some locals, and the experience is so high, but the lows are so much lower. So you miss out on birthdays, or you miss out on Christmas. So it's, it's a kind of a really big roller coaster, at least in, in my eyes, while being home is kind of a steady, you know, have some ups and downs, but it's, it's not so bad. So how was your adjustment moving back to the UK? Um, it was hard. Mm-hmm. Not going to lie for people thinking about it. It's definitely a challenge. And I moved to Ireland as well, which was a whole new place for me. So first of all, the financial adjustment mm-hmm. to reality is really tough. You have to do things like pay tax. <laughs> you know, that's a big shock to the system. And then, of course, all of your skills and your experience is all sea-based. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult. I do recommend before people leave to consider a backup plan. Maybe mm-hmm. use the money that you've been saving and invest in either a property or a business or something you can get stuck in with because it's not easy to just arrive home and mm-hmm. think, right, what am I going to do now for the rest of my life? But I'm sure that, you know, before you leave, you can start getting your ducks in a row, start applying for jobs or starting your own even business on the side. If you have some time, there's so many opportunities now with the Internet and doing side hustles to kind of get you ready. So you're back in Ireland. And what's life like in Ireland? I'm hearing you started some kind of cafe over there. Yeah, it's good. I love Ireland. Mm-hmm. And I've settled here now for life. So I recently I've got two small startup businesses and mm-hmm. one is I bought an old boathouse that's just on the beach here. And that was part of my investment money. And I'm just turning that into a seaside cafe and marine tourism hub. So 
So mm. we're looking this summer to open with water sport equipment, rentals, paddle boards, and just to kind of show the fishing heritage here and have a good kind of, you know, encourage the people to get in more involved with the marine environments. All right. So I want to finish. I have a speed round of three questions for you. And just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind, okay? Okay. So first one, most underrated destination that you have visited? Kotal. <laughs> Extremely underrated. I couldn't agree with you anymore. I've been there, I think, 10 times now. And every time I go there, I'm like, this place is underrated. It is. Uh, and I recommend people to check out Sairi Diving Cottage. Yeah, that's actually where we met was uh, Sairi Cottage over there. They have a fantastic professional diving route if you are interested in taking becoming a scuba instructor or a dive master. Maddie Barker works over there in charge of dive masters. And Marcel, of course, the Kotao chief over there with the instructors. <laughs> yeah. So we had a pleasure of listening to his lectures during our dive programs. So definitely check out Sairi Cottage. I was actually shocked because I was just reading some things online that they're shutting down the island. And I never thought in my life that they would also have social distancing on that small little island that feels like paradise kind of taken away from the real world. So I was shocked by that and want to make sure everyone's safe out there. Second question, where did you dive that really took your breath away? Indonesia. Indonesia. And where specifically? Oh, I can't remember because our, our boat would just anchor but like the currents were strong. It was challenging. The currents mm -hmm. were strong. The marine life was insane. I sent you a few videos and you mm -hmm. sealed fish. Ah, oh, it's just incredible. Yeah, mm -hmm. I recommend. Was this by any chance Manta Point or do you not remember? I don't yeah. think so. I mean, we, we, I snorkeled with Mantas, but I can't mm -hmm. remember. Sorry. One of my diving friends, there's some really, really good drift diving in Indonesia. He said he boat drops you off and it picks you up like <laughs> three miles away while you're just yeah. riding the roller coaster of the ocean. So oh, fantastic. Last one. I know you get really excited about seeing sea creatures. Which sea creature is the one that gets you most excited? Dolphin. Dolphin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've never dived with one ever. I've always missed it. I've done sharks and stuff, but even at the bow of the boat, you'd see them jumping along with us like, oh, I'm obsessed. Anyone who knows me knows I'm obsessed. <laughs> well, Tony, thank you so much. I really enjoyed having you on the show. If you are interested, Tony said she's more than happy for you to reach out to her on Instagram. Her Instagram is underscore TJ Walsh underscore, and we'll leave them in the show notes. If you are interested in the super yacht course she did, she was at Galileo Maritime Academy in Phuket. She also told me that she did some of her open water and other diving certifications in Orca Scuba Diving Academy. And of course, she did her instructor course at Seri Cottage Beach with the uh, chief of Kota, Mr. Marcel, the legend. <laughs> and if you're ever in the area, you can definitely check out this cafe. She's trying to open up and then working on it. Sounds like a fantastic local vibe. What would be the name of your cafe? It's called the Boathouse Cremon. Oh, wow. Sounds very exotic. <laughs> <laughs> this is era. So thank you so much, Tony, for you coming on our show. I was super excited to hear your story and to share with other people who are interested in taking an alternate route in life. So thank you so much, Tony. Oh, thanks for having me. We'll chat again soon.